Welcome to Philosophers on Medicine. Side effects include having your mind blown. I'm Jonathan Fuller. Medical Nihilism. Is it a vestige of a bygone age in medicine, beset with treatments like mercury and bloodletting? Or the proper conclusion of a line of argument about our current medical interventions, citing problems with contemporary medical research? These problems include the complex pathophysiology of contemporary diseases, the malleability of medical research methods, the biased social nexus of medical research, and a small effect size crisis. Should we have low confidence on average in medical interventions today? And is this the kind of question that we can answer with a dose of data and philosophy? Today's consultation is with philosopher Jacob Stegenga, university lecturer in history and philosophy of science at the University of Cambridge. Jacob Stegenga, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You recently wrote a book titled Medical Nihilism. So to start us off, what is medical nihilism? And what motivated you to write a book about medical nihilism? So medical nihilism is the view that we ought to have low confidence in the effectiveness of medical interventions. So it's a kind of general skeptical thesis, both about medical research and the products of medical research. What motivated me to write the book, it started as a series of articles and I began to ask myself a few years ago, what ties all of these articles together thematically? And I started to see a general skeptical thesis emerging in my work in those articles a few years ago. So I decided to assess the extent to which thesis like medical nihilism could be defended in general terms, which because on its face, at least it's an audacious thesis, I thought it required a book to warrant. You're not the first scholar to put forth nihilistic views about this or that aspect of medicine. In fact, many historically important critiques of medicine have been put forth that one could consider as constituting a genre of medical nihilism writing over time. Um, can you give us maybe a couple of examples of important or interesting nihilistic critiques of medicine? Sure. So, in fact, one can find, of course, criticisms of mainstream medicine throughout the history of medicine, and even, even Hippocrates, at least some passages that are attributed to Hippocrates, sound somewhat nihilistic. Uh, so for instance, there's a, a passage attributed to Hippocrates, which says, walking is our best medicine. Well, the implication of that is the mainstream medicine on hand uh, isn't all that useful. And of course, throughout the Middle Ages and the early modern period, there are many expressions of medical nihilism by all sorts of thinkers, playwrights, essayists, and physicians themselves. And it was a very trendy position in the 19th century. The term of art in the 19th century was therapeutic nihilism. So physicians in, in Paris and New York often called themselves therapeutic nihilists. The position, the kind of general skeptical view about medicine sort of fell by the wayside somewhere around the first early decades of the 20th century, thanks in part, I think, to kind of golden age of medical discoveries, things like, you know, Banting and Best's discovery that exogenous insulin could treat type 1 diabetes, the discovery of antibiotics and many vaccines. So really there was this handful of decades, say from 
about 1900 to 1950, in which there were really just revolutionary medical interventions that were discovered. So this general skeptical view about medicine sort of fell by the wayside. But starting in the 60s and 70s, there were a few prominent skeptics about medicine. So Illich famously wrote a book entitled Medical Nemesis, in which he argued that medicine does more harm than good. And some of these positions were aligned with kind of general anti-industry or anti-capitalist kind of sentiment that was popular in the 1960s. And then in the last generation or so, there have been many epidemiologists, physicians, journalists, and a few academic scholars who have been articulating skeptical views about medicine. Even some really prominent, well-placed physicians who are, say, editors of major medical journals Richard Smith, the former editor of the British Medical Journal, or Marcia Angel, former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. They've written books, published many articles, or say blog posts, editorial posts, which are really, really skeptical about modern medical research and medical treatments. So in your estimation, is medical nihilism a popular position today outside of a handful of criticisms by several people, albeit quite prominent figures, editors, concerned insiders. Is it a popular position today within medicine or even outside of medicine? I think the general public has some antipathy towards mainstream medicine. This is probably in part why alternative medicines are so popular, is that among the general populace, there's some skepticism about mainstream medicine. and There's a lot of conspiracy theories about modern medicine being, say, toxic and so on, which is why, say, some people like homeopathy. But of course, there's also a great amount of enthusiasm for mainstream medicine today. So by almost any metric, uh, number of dollars spent on modern healthcare, number of prescriptions per person, profitability of the pharmaceutical industry, by almost any metric, mainstream medicine is celebrated as useful, important, and of course, arguably it is in many contexts, useful and important. So there's no simple answer to your question. I think medical nihilism, or at least the arguments that warrant medical nihilism, are relatively familiar to many people who think carefully about medicine, including many physicians and policymakers. So in your book, just as the title suggests, you defend a thesis that you call medical nihilism. So how do you state that thesis in your book? Okay, so the thesis is quite clear and simple. The thesis is that we ought to have low confidence in the effectiveness of medical interventions. And now normally when we're evaluating the effectiveness of a medical intervention, we use our best science. So we use clinical trials, epidemiological evidence, Maybe in earlier phases, we use preclinical studies, which is essentially biological science. In other words, we use empirical research. We gather data. So how is it possible to defend a position like medical nihilism, which is about interventions using philosophical arguments? Right. So there's a lot that could be said about this question. So to be clear, part of the argument for medical nihilism is conceptual or philosophical. But of course, a lot of it is also empirical. Let me begin by articulating a slightly more refined version of the thesis. So medical nihilism is not the claim that we shouldn't trust any medical interventions. There are, of course, some extremely important and effective medical interventions like, say, antibiotics for many bacterial infections or 
insulin for type 1 diabetes, just staunching a blood flow from a wound. Um, so there are many really important medical interventions. What's interesting is that some of the empirical methods that you mentioned, like randomized control trials or meta-analyses, are especially important for those medical interventions which have very small effect sizes. In order to accurately test the effectiveness of a medical intervention which has very, very modest effect sizes, we need methods that are very sensitive to those small effect sizes. Okay, so there's a huge amount of empirical literature that shows that most new medical interventions, interventions introduced in the last generation or two, have really tiny effect sizes. And some people are calling the current state of medicine an effect size crisis. The better that empirical methods get, methods like RCTs and meta-analyses, the worse the interventions look, the smaller the effect sizes are. So in general, part of the argument for medical nihilism is empirical. It's to look at the very best of randomized control trials and meta-analyses that show that many of our most widely used medicines have really tiny effect sizes. There is, in addition, a theoretical component to the argument. So part of the argument for medical nihilism employs this metaphor of magic bullet. The idea of medicines being magic bullets has been with us for about a century. Many of the early medical interventions like antibiotics or, or insulin really were magic bullets insofar as they targeted the diseases that they were um, being employed to treat with high specificity and high potency. So we do have a handful of medicines which are like magic bullets, but for various biological reasons, we have few such magic bullets, and there have been very few magic bullets introduced in medicine in recent years. So that kind of argument involves understanding how exogenous medical interventions like pharmaceuticals modulate our physiology and involves understanding the complex causal basis of diseases under intervention today. So that's not, strictly speaking, just directly an empirical argument. It involves some theoretical considerations about the nature of pathophysiology and the ways in which interventions modulate that pathophysiology. And then finally, part of the argument for medical nihilism involves a sociological look at how medical research is carried out today. And as many like, journalistic commentators have noted, industry plays a big role in designing, funding, carrying out, and publishing medical research. Part of the problem is that such medical research is shot through with biases. So part of the argument for medical nihilism is to understand these biases. These biases contribute to overestimating the effectiveness of medical interventions and underestimating their harms. So there's an empirical component to the argument for medical nihilism, there's a theoretical component, and there's a sociological component. Another general argument you marshal in favor of medical nihilism looks at what you call the malleability of medical research. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that malleability of research and why that helps you defend your position? Sure. Many of us hold the view that a randomized control trial or a meta-analysis of many randomized controlled trials is like the definitive statement about whether or not a drug is effective. These are you know, big, carefully done experimental methods that give us a concrete effect size or number. It's supposed to be a measure of how good the medical intervention is. And many of us find that very persuasive. But the problem, as you noted, is that these methods are what I call malleable. 
So a malleable method is one which can be bent to the will of the researcher. There are many decision points in designing, performing, analyzing, and publishing RCTs and meta-analyses. Now each of those decision points introduces researcher degree of freedom, introduces the possibility of tuning the method such that the method is more likely to give you evidence in favor of your intervention under investigation. So some of these decisions include what kinds of subjects to include in a randomized trial in the first place, what kinds of properties should be measured in the trial, which of those measurements should be reported in a publication of the trial, which experiments, which randomized trials should be reported. So as we know, publication bias is a huge problem in medical research. And then when performing a meta-analysis, again, which trials to include in the meta-analysis, what kind of outcome measure to use to analyze the data. So there are all sorts of decision points in randomized trials and meta-analyses, and that opens the door for bending those trials. Okay, so as you've framed it, the thesis medical nihilism states that on average, our confidence should be low. So not necessarily low in this intervention here or that intervention, but if you average our confidence and the effectiveness of all the interventions, it should come out as somewhat low. One potential worry would be that it's kind of hard to do the math. What's hard to actually determine when we look at all the disparate interventions we have that on average, our confidence should be low. So it's hard to kind of crunch the numbers and quantify just how confident we should be, even if we use a term like low, which is not so precise, but still commits us to some kind of range of confidence. Yeah, I take this point and I agree with it basically. So the thesis of medical nihilism, as I've framed it in the book, is about our confidence. So the claim is that our confidence in medical interventions should be low. At the very least, they should be, it should be lower than what it currently seems to be on average. Uh, how low is low enough? How much lower should it be than it is now? These are questions that I don't really address in the book. The master argument for medical nihilism involves this appeal to Bayes' theorem, which involves using various you know, probabilistic terms. And I certainly don't think that the actual facts warrant very precise values for what those terms are. So for instance, what exact impact should knowing that medical research methods are malleable have on our confidence in the effectiveness of, say, a newly tested medical intervention. I don't think there's anything very precise that can be said about that. In general, though, I think that for a thesis like this, a certain amount of vagueness or ambiguity is perfectly fine. At present today, it looks like, on average, there's a really high confidence in society's assessment of medicine, and the arguments that go into medical nihilism conclude that it ought to be much lower than it is now. A related objection might go something like this, and you might call this the cherry-picking objection. So you use lots of examples to illustrate your point naturally, examples that show that a lot of our interventions, or some of our interventions at least, have low effect sizes. Those kind of interventions often tend to be ones that prevent an undesirable outcome, like a heart attack or stroke. And so we have antihypertensives, statins, cholesterol-lowering drugs, and so forth. And also other examples where we know that there have been cases of financial conflicts of interest that have led to either outright fraud or nefarious research practices. So the examples, I think, go some way to showing that this is not just a theoretical problem, that we really do have cases out there that illustrate the kinds of 
problems with research, with research funding and the social structure of the research enterprise that lend themselves to the kind of critique that you launch. But I, I have heard people worry that, well, there are tons of other examples too that aren't as susceptible to your kinds of worries. You can list some examples like statins or anti-diabetic oral agents, antidepressants, but then, you know, an objector might throw out their store of examples. They might point to anti-inflammatory drugs like, you know, ibuprofen, Advil, new biologic drugs. They might point to the range of antibiotics that we now have for a range of infections or surgeries like transplant surgeries for kidneys and hearts and lungs. And could devolve into just kind of example, counterexample argument. But the underlying worry might be that in kind of choosing a class of examples to illustrate your point, the class you chose isn't representative of all interventions out there, which is quite a heterogeneous mix of treatments. Right. Yeah. So to answer this question, I want to first clarify that, again, the overall argument, what I'm calling the master argument for medical nihilism, is not merely an empirical argument. Right. So there's a theoretical component, uh, a conceptual component, uh, a component of the argument that appeals to biased research methodology, and then there's an empirical component. This empirical component looks at really large range of randomized trials and meta-analyses on our most used medical interventions. Those trials and meta-analyses show that those most used medical interventions have tiny effect sizes. So the general argument for medical nihilism is not merely empirical. Um, if it was merely empirical, then to, to make that argument, one would have to, you know, randomly sample all of the medical interventions that are used and quantify the effect size of those medical interventions in a way which was like systematic and could be amalgamated between medical interventions. And that's, of course, not what I'm doing in this book, like a kind of systematic review of systematic reviews. I'm not doing that. Um, of course, though, I use many illustrative examples throughout the book and one might wonder, aren't those illustrative examples cherry-picked? And in some sense, I confess, those examples are cherry-picked. I chose the examples very carefully. I chose examples typically to illustrate the arguments by drawing on medical interventions, which are the most widely used medical interventions in the last, say, generation or two. So you mentioned statins, um, blood pressure-lowering drugs, antidepressants. These are among the best selling drugs in the last several decades. And those are the medical interventions that I draw on to illustrate the more general arguments. If we accept medical nihilism, then where do we go from here as patients, physicians, researchers, society? What are the implications of accepting such a radical view? Let me start by saying one doesn't have to accept the radical view of medical nihilism to think that there are things about medicine that need to be changed. So in the substantive chapters of the book, each chapter focuses on you know, a particular problem in medical research or a particular problem about medical interventions themselves. And so one could take on board the articulation of those problems without taking on board the general thesis of medical nihilism. And if one does that, then on a kind of chapter-by-chapter chapter basis, one sees that there are problems that need addressing. And throughout the book, from one chapter to the, to the next, I suggest some ways in which changes can be made to improve medicine and medical research. But to the extent that one does find the general thesis compelling, then there is this question that you raise, namely, well, what now? What should patients, physicians, and policymakers do in light of this general skeptical argument? In the, in the last chapter of the book, 
I make a few proposals. One idea that I like is called gentle medicine. So it, it goes by different names in different countries, different contexts. But gentle medicine is basically the, the idea that we should be intervening less in day-to-day -day cases of disease. We should be intervening less or using interventions which are less toxic and using more interventions which are aimed at the bigger picture and underlying problems. So for instance, if you want to lower a person's blood pressure, we should get that person to eat better and exercise rather than give them, say, a beta blocker. So that's one idea that I propose at the end of the book, uh, gentle medicine. I also think that regulation of new medicines needs to be strengthened. So if medical nihilism is a compelling thesis, even if only part of the argument is compelling, that suggests that there are pretty significant problems with the way medicine is regulated, especially with regulations for new drug approval. So part of the last chapter suggests ways in which regulations for new drug approval should be strengthened. Also, to the extent that the thesis is compelling, it suggests that the trajectory of medical research in general might need to be modified. So I make some suggestions regarding how research priorities for the distribution of medical research resources should be modified. So there are various kind of big picture solutions to some of the problems that I raised. There are also some kind of fine-grained solutions as well. So, you know, one of the arguments that we talked about earlier was the fact that trials and meta-analyses are malleable. But there are various things that can be done to trials and meta-analyses to make them less malleable. And of course, I'm not the first person to note this. In fact, there are important organizations that are trying to articulate guidelines such that trials and meta-analyses become more reliable. What's interesting is that the better that trials and meta-analyses are, the more that they follow these improvements in methodology, the worse the tested interventions tend to look. Well, Jacob, I feel anything but nihilistic about the quality of the conversation we've had today. So thanks so much for chatting with me. Thank you, John. To hear more Philosophers on Medicine, visit www.philosophersonmedicine.com or find us on iTunes or Google Play.